We're continuing in our series, our journey, as we're surveying the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in a series entitled God's Story, Our Story. And so we pick up our journey through the Word of God by looking at Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18 through 25. This is what the Word of God says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven, to the every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was, no, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh and the rib, and the Lord God had taken from the man he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And on this Lord's day, the grass withers and the flower fades. But this word, this word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. If you weren't here last week, we looked at the first half of Genesis chapter 2 and we saw that God is a God that created us for relationship. And the most important, the primary relationship that God establishes with humanity is with who? Is with himself. We read in the first part of Genesis chapter 2 that God establishes relationship between him and his creation. Humanity that he's created in his image. And we saw last week how God's name now not only includes Elohim, the sovereign creator of the universe, but in Genesis chapter 2, Moses introduces us to another name of God, Yahweh. So God will not only be the God who's created the heavens and the earth, but God will also be the God who longs to establish covenant and relationship as the Yahweh Elohim God of his people. But what we see here in the second part of Genesis chapter 2 is that God not only establishes relationship between himself and his creation, between himself and humanity, but he desires for humanity to have fellowship and relationship with others as well. So God not only desires a vertical relationship, but desires a horizontal relationship as well. And the primary horizontal relationship that God establishes in the second half of Genesis chapter 2 is the relationship between a husband and a wife. God looks at man and he says it's not good. In the Hebrew there, the not good is in the emphatic. Remember, all along we have seen what? Good, good, good. Everything in creation is good. And when he creates humanity, it's very good. But then all of a sudden, in the midst of benediction, you have the opposite. 
And you have God saying, something is not good. The drama of creation, Adam sitting on the throne having dominion over all of creation, naming animals over here and naming animals over there, you can sense the sadness that there's something missing. A helper, a mate, a partner. Who would God bring to me so that in the midst of my sadness, it would be good? So we see here, how would humanity flourish fully in the garden. Last week establishes relationship with his humanity, but now we're going to see how God, in order for humanity to flourish, establishes relationships between the man and the creation of the woman. What does God provide humanity in the garden? The first thing that we see here in our text is God provides a partner God provides the man a partner. As I said, everything was good up until now. We see good, 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 very good. And then all of a sudden, like I said, God says it's not good. It is not good for the man that I created to be alone. So God creates a partner for the man. Think about this. It's in paradise. No sin before the fall. And God is saying something's wrong, something's missing, something is not good. So we need to be reminded that even in the midst of paradise, even in the midst of something being so good as the heavens and earth being created and the goodness, the very goodness of the, of the creator God creating the first human being, God still recognizes that there is something missing. There is no helper and surgery is needed. And we're told in this passage what happens. God allows the man to be put to sleep and out of his side he creates a helper, a partner. And what does Adam do? What does the man do? In verse 23, it says, This at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That word there, that phrase there, at last, is translated, finally, finally, the one whom I've been longing for. Don't miss the emphatic nature of Adam waking up from his sleep and looking at what God had created from his side and yelling out, crying out, at last, finally, now, my life can be complete. At last, I've been waiting for this my entire life. Don't miss the beauty of that statement of the first husband looking at the first wife and the affection that he has. You can hear it in the voice, the emphatic nature. At last, my life is complete. Now let's, let's look at two things that God does there in providing a partner. How is this partner described? Well, the first way this partner is described is as a helper, right? God says twice, there is no helper for this first husband. There is no helper for this first man in the garden. So the first way that the woman is described as a perfect partner for the man is as a helper. 
Now you go, in our culture, you go, this is so demeaning. Great, of course. The, the, the first title that's given to the first woman is helper. The servant, right? The one who's going to schlep around and help the husband and do all the dirty work for him, right? I mean, Rob, are you really going to preach this sermon in the 21st century? Really? Helper? Well, we've missed the whole idea of what a helper means. Helper in this passage is translated Azar. Azar, what's the big deal about that? Well, the Hebrew name Azar is actually the name used for God 16 different times throughout the Old Testament. So if the word helper means less than for the woman, it means less than for God. Are you tracking with me? If the God giving woman the title helper means less than, it means God is somehow less than. So therefore, it can't mean less than. You see, the name helper, Azar, was a military term given to God as the only one who could come and rescue, the only one who could meet the needs of the people. Are you tracking with me? And so when God gives woman the name helper, Azar here in the Hebrew Old Testament, he's saying there's only one that can meet the needs of this man. There's only one that can come and meet and help and, and, and help and meet that which is deficient in the man and make that relationship sufficient. Are you tracking with me? The name Azar What a beautiful thing that God could have given any, God could have prescribed any name for the first partner. And he said, I'm going to give you the name Azar, a helper, a helper, which means that God saves Adam from the death of solitude for providing an Azar for him. And that we would see throughout the Old Testament that this would be the same name given to God who comes and helps his people. Oh God, our, what? Help in ages past. This is the name, the beautiful name. So the partner that God provides, the first man in the garden, is described as the helper, the the Azar. But he not only says, I will provide an Azar, but he says what? A, A helper that is, we see it in verse 18 and we see it again in verse 20. A helper that is fit. In some translations, you might have the word a suitable, a suitable helper or a fit helper. That's how this partner is described. What does it mean by suitable? What does it mean by fit? Well, it literally means in the Hebrew, the opposite. Yes, God created an opposite for the man. God thought it was a good idea to create an opposite. This is what God didn't do. He didn't look at man and say, it's not good for man to live alone, so I'm going to create another man so you can watch college football and eat wings on Saturday. God said it's not good for man to live alone, and therefore, God could have done anything next. Not good for him to be alone. There's no suitable helper. So we need to pay attention. What does God do next? Because what God does next is his perfect plan. God's not randomly going, a woman, I'll give you a woman. God is so intentional here. And so he says, I'm going to give you a helper, but I'm going to give you a helper that fits you. I'm going to give a a helper that is suitable for you, which literally means an opposite. God gives us an opposite. You see, listen to me. When God defines the gender in the Old Testament at the beginning, God is being very specific how he's defining male and how he's defining gender. 
It is not male and male. It is not female and female. It is male and female. Gender here in Genesis chapter 2 is not generic. It is not neutral. And it is not up for our culture to define. Let me be very clear about that. This is God's word speaking. And God's word says, in the beginning, God defines gender. God defines male. God defines female. It's not a social construct. It is not a cultural construct. It is from the very word of God that God creates male. And then he says there is no suitable helper fit for him. And then he comes and creates female. A suitable or fit helper that would complement each other. So from the beginning, created distinct, given the opposite. And listen to me, this is why marriage takes so much work. Because God says in the beginning, he created you an alien. Someone that was nothing like you. This is why marriage takes so much work. Because God created male, and then he says, I'm going to create your very opposite. I'm going to create female for you. And that's why marriage takes so much work. So in the beginning, God provides a partner, a helper and a suitable helper that would partner with the male. The second thing that we see here in the garden is that God provides a pattern. God provides a pattern in the garden. After providing a partner for, for Adam and for the first husband, for the first male, he creates a pattern for us and provides a pattern, a design for us. We see it here in verse 24 and 25. It says, now that you have male and female, this is what it will look like. A man shall leave his father and his mother. So what God is saying is you are born into one family, but then you will one day separate from that family and you will do what? You will create a new family. See, what God is saying here, the man shall leave his father and mother, is it's the creation of a new family. Do you see the pattern here? God creates the heavens and the earth. God creates the beast of the field. God creates male and female in his image. And God even creates family. Remember I said in week one, this is just a side note, everything we need to know about life is found right here in the word of God. Where did the heavens and the earth come from? We have to go back to the word of God. Where did God come from? The concept of God come from? Who is humanity and how do we know, understand? How do we understand the world and the fall and gender and male and female and marriage and family all defined not by the world and the culture but all defined by God in God's word? God, what is God doing here in verse 24? He's talking about the creation of family. God creates family. God defines family. And so God is talking about the creation of family. A man is born into one home and then eventually he will leave his mother and father and he will start a new family. But then we see the word here. It says he will hold fast. He will hold fast. This is the first pattern and the first design of the new family. To hold fast in some of our older translations, maybe like a King James version, you might have the word cleave, right? This is where we get the phrase leave and cleave, right? This idea of holding fast, this word of cleaving. This idea of holding fast is legal terminology. It's covenant terminology. It means that you'll be joined legally, bound to your spouse. Now, this is so countercultural for us because we live in a culture that goes, why bother getting married? 
Why bother going through all of the ceremony? I mean, as long as we love each other and we live with each other and we're compatible with each other, why go through the whole process of getting married? Right? Why go through the whole ceremony and the vows and the rings and all that stuff? What does it really mean? As long as we love each other. Uh, the culture says this about marriage. It's just a piece of paper at the end of the day, right? But the Word of God says, no, 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 no. The, how I defined marriage and how I created marriage is that I want you to be legally bound to your spouse. I want the husband to be bound to his wife and the wife to be bound to the husband. It is not just a piece of paper, but when, when Moses talks about a man leaving his father and his mother and holding fast to his wife, it is talking about making a public declaration, public vows that I am legally bound to my spouse. I am making a pledge to each other. That is what it means to hold fast. So that on your worst days, listen to me, in marriage, when you go, I just don't have that feeling anymore. Or I just don't know if I really love my wife. And I just don't know if I really love my husband like I did 25, 30 years ago. You can go back and say, no, I made a commitment to hold fast. I made a commitment to cleave. I made a commitment that I would be legally bound to my partner forever. Now, if you're here today and you go, I'm going to be bound to my partner just based off of emotions and just based off of that feeling of love, good luck to you. Because I can promise you there will be days where you roll over and you go, I'm not in love. Or I'm struggling to love my partner. Or we're going through a rough season. And that season could take weeks, it could take months, and it takes years. And if you don't have something deeper and stronger than love and emotion and just a good feeling, there will be nothing that holds your marriage together. There must be a sense in which you go, I am bound by covenant that I hold fast to my wife. The other thing that we see in this pattern is not just this idea of holding fast, but we see it says at the end of verse 24 that the two shall become one flesh. What does one flesh mean? Once again, legal terminology, covenant terminology. This idea of becoming one flesh was a... A legal, a legal unity between two people, that two flesh would become one. What this is speaking to is this idea that mentally, socially, emotionally, spiritually, everything in your life becomes mine and everything in my life becomes yours. We are bound together as one. It's covenant renewal. That's what Moses is talking about here. That two flesh becoming one is covenant renewal between two partners. And when we are physically intimate with one another, is that safe enough for some of the children in the room? When we are physically intimate with each other as husband and wife, what that is and what is happening, it is the outward expression of everything that is happening internally. So all of this oneness, this oneness of mind, this oneness of spirit, this oneness of soul, all of the inward, internal oneness that is happening between a husband and wife, when we are physically intimate with each other, that is the outward manifestation and the outward expression of everything happening intimately inside of us. That's why physical intimacy can only be reserved for a husband and a wife. And listen to me. 
as your pastor, if you are not willing to be vulnerable in every area of your life, you have no business being vulnerable with somebody physically. Listen to me. If you are not willing to be vulnerable in every area of your life with someone, you have no business being physically vulnerable and intimate with someone. Let me be very clear about that. The Bible reserves physical intimacy for one man and one woman that are united together in marriage, period. That is what it is for. And there will be nothing in your life, listen to me very carefully, especially our younger people in the room, there will be nothing but chaos and destruction in your life if you are willing to give yourself away physically without first making that commitment legally and to each other. This is a solemn, legal, spiritual, binding agreement between a man and a woman that nothing, nothing is more sacred and nothing is more precious than physical intimacy between a man and a woman. Therefore, only can be reserved for one who is willing to make, take that step forward. You see, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, this is God's way of renewing his covenant with us. Do you know that? All throughout, all throughout church history, we have believed that the Lord's Supper is God's covenant renewal with us. Why? Because we forget. It's a reminder, how much do I love you, church? I'm willing to break my body and pour out my blood for you. It's God's means of renewing his covenant with you. And in the same way, physical intimacy between a husband and a wife are, is God's provision for only a husband and a wife to renew the covenant with each other and say, I have made everything, a commitment to make everything one with you. And therefore, even my body will be given for you as well. But lastly, God, we see, provides a partner and he provides a pattern. But where do we get the power? Where do we get the power to fulfill our roles as husbands and as wives? Where do we get the power so that we can flourish in this precious relationship that God has given us? Well, God also provides a picture in the scriptures. God provides a picture you see, this picture of marriage that we have here in Genesis chapter 2 would serve, this picture of marriage between a husband and a wife would serve as how God would treat us all throughout the scriptures. You see, in the Old Testament, we not only see God longing to be our shepherd, but we see God longing to be our husband. Look at two passages in particular, Hosea and Isaiah. In Hosea two, chapter 2, verse 16, it says this, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master, Hosea 2.16. In Isaiah it says, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. All throughout the Old Testament, God likening himself to a husband, to a bridegroom, pursuing his people as we are the bride. And so we have to understand here in Genesis chapter 2, God is not only defining marriage for you and me, but he's also defining what will my relationship be like 
between myself and between my people. What a beautiful thing to think of God as our bridegroom, God as our husband pursuing his bride, and oh, how we would need it. Because in one chapter later, the husband, the first husband that was given to the woman, abandons his bride. And in the garden, at the tree, in her moment of extreme vulnerability, when she needed her husband, her husband is nowhere to be found and is tempted by the serpent. And our first, uh, first husband we see in the garden, he blows it and he fails. And from the moment of Genesis chapter 3, we would be in need of a better husband. We would be in need of another Adam, another husband that would come on our behalf. And centuries later, we would read of that perfect husband coming in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 about that perfect husband, Jesus Christ, who eventually comes. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, this beautiful passage, what does Paul say? Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see what Paul is doing and what they understood in the New Testament, that Jesus is ultimately the perfect husband, the perfect bridegroom that would come for his bride. Right there though, it begins in Genesis chapter 2, that the pattern of marriage that God alone defines would serve as the pattern of how God and the picture of how God would work through the world in rescuing a bride for himself and even sacrificing his very own son. And it's only when you understand this that it is Jesus as the perfect husband who lays down his white life for his bride that you and I can have the power to fulfill our callings as men and women of God who have been called to one another only when you look to Jesus on the cross and you look at the perfect bridegroom can you and I find the power. When I see the perfect bridegroom hanging on a cross for his bride, then I can go, that's the power to love my bride as Christ loved the church. That's the power to fulfill my role and my calling as a husband and as a wife. And on those days when you are ready to throw in the towel on your marriage, all you have to do is this. How does God look at me? You're the bride from hell. You're bridezilla. You run away from God all the time. You are always unfaithful. You are bridezilla to the core. And what does God do? He keeps pursuing and keeps pursuing and keeps pursuing. And so on your worst days, you go, God, never, ever in the person of Jesus Christ would ever throw in the towel on me. It was a sweet story of a husband and wife that were married for 45 years. And the husband had dementia pretty severely. And so one day the husband with dementia came into his wife of 45 years and said, I want to get married to you. Now, the wife had been going through this long enough to realize you just kind of go, th 
you just kind of go, go with it. You don't correct them. You don't try to c- communicate that, well, honey, we've actually been married for 45 years. She goes, that would be amazing. And so he actually gets down on his knees and he proposes to her and she just rolls with it. And she goes, absolutely. Yes, this is awesome. Yes, we, I will be your wife. The next day comes and thinking that he'll forget about it, he doesn't. And he says, when, when are we going to do it? When are we going to get married? And he goes, well, uh, we'll get married in a few days, honey. The next day, wakes up. When are we going to do it? When's the wedding? So finally she goes, he, he's really serious. He doesn't think we're married. I mean, he really wants to get married. And so she just rolls with it and she invites family and friends. She gets a photographer and they do, they do the whole thing. They do the whole ceremony. They get married. Again, but not really. They've already been married, but he forgot. She said it was the happiest day of his life. It was his wedding day. And so it is for you. You forget every week that you have a husband who loves you and laid down his life for you, but you forget. And we come to the Lord's table this morning Because you need to be reminded, it's your wedding day today. Not really. Some of you have been walking with Jesus your whole life. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for years. But you need to be reminded again of the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for you. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you know the perfect husband, the perfect bridegroom who laid down his life for his wayward bride?